those bugs and Mary seeing Jesus and folded clothing and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, Last week, Ryan talked about and spoke from the first half of chapter 20 of the book of John, which is the last chapter of the book of John. So um, I'm going to speak from the second half of that. Um, First, though, I'd like to just, we're going to have a little recap of kind of what happened last week, just in case anybody slept in for Easter. Um, So right on Friday, Jesus is killed at the hands of the uh, priests and the adversaries, and he is put on the cross and taken down, wrapped in linen, taken to the tomb, and then the stone is rolled over the tomb. And then it's Sunday morning, right? Mary goes down to the tomb. She finds that the stone, that the stone has been moved. So she goes and gets some disciples who come in and they verify that everything's gone and, and that Jesus is gone and the tomb is empty. And they leave, and Mary stays back. And that's where we see that Mary encounters Jesus in the form of this gardener. Remember, Ryan put up this picture last week of Jesus holding the shovel, right, of Jesus the gardener. And um, once she recognizes that this is Jesus, that this is the risen Lord, he tells her to go and to tell the other disciples what she's seen and what she's heard. And the last line from uh, last week's text is, Mary went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And from there, we'll just we'll pick up with this week's reading. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when, he saw, when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where his where the nails were, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told them, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have faith, you may have life in his name. By the way, before we get into it, is that not the best way to, like, end a book, right? Just this, John leaves us with this blanket statement that's like, Jesus did all these other things, and if I told you, they'd probably totally blow your mind, just great signs and wonders, but I'm not going to tell you, that's for somebody else to say. Just, I've always found that that's a really interesting way to to close a book. Anyway, so I grew up in the Catholic tradition. Um, By any chance, did anybody else grow up Catholic? Yeah, so I grew up in the Catholic tradition until about the same time. Um, I went through all of the standard kind of sacraments and trappings that came with growing up Catholic. We went to Mass every week. I 
had my first communion, reconciliation, um, and then when I was 13, I went through this process of confirmation. Um, but through everything in my childhood, through kind of everything I went through, and even now to this day, issues of faith really have never, ever come easy for me. Um, I've never been somebody to have faith come easy, and unbelief has really been kind of a dominant narrative of much of my life, and doubt has been a, sort of a dominant nar narrative of, of much of my life even till today. So when I was 13, a lot of this kind of came to a head when I went through this confirmation process. When you go through this, you go through a process of choosing kind of a second middle name. They call it a confirmation name, and it's, it's meant to be a name that affirms that you're now a mature believer in the Catholic faith. Typically, when you do this, you're encouraged to choose the name of one of the saints of the Catholic Church um, as, your, as your name, kind of as a grounding point. But as a young teenager, I really didn't want to have anything to do with this process. I really didn't want to have anything to do with faith or with church or any of it. So I didn't even look at the saints, and I decided I wasn't going to do that. And instead, I chose the name of my older brother's best friend, who I thought was really cool and who I kind of looked up to. And his name was Tommy. And I quickly learned from the other adults in the church that that was a bad thing to do. See, I shouldn't have wanted to be Thomas. Thomas was the doubter, and that wasn't a good role model for a young person in the church to have. But I went ahead and did it anyway, and I really couldn't have imagined that that actually, that choice and having this grounding point of Thomas really came to be uh, something that describes a lot of my faith journey up until this point. Uh, I really love this story. I've come to really love this, this story uh, the more and more I've studied the Bible. And there's a few things here that I'd like us to take a look at. Um, first, there's a reason why I wanted to start with the end of last week's reading and not just pick up where we were today. I think that uh, tells a very important part of this story, um, and I think that it kind of reframes the story in a way that we don't often hear. What we see at the end of last week's reading is that Mary goes and she tells the disciples that she's seen the risen Christ, um, that she's spoken to him, and that she actually saw him in the flesh, right? But apparently, that wasn't enough for the disciples, because what we see is that at the that same evening, they're huddled up in this upper locked room in just complete fear. They're totally, they're still totally afraid. It's not until Jesus appears to them inside that locked room when all the doors are locked uh, that they actually can believe Mary's story, that they can understand it, and that they can come to believe for themselves. I mean, not, not all the disciples, right? Thomas is there. And what's interesting is that we don't know why Thomas wasn't there. We just know that they're missing one person. We don't know where he was or what he was doing on Easter or any of that stuff. We just know that he wasn't there with them. And in this process, I kind of think Thomas gets a bad rep for the fact that he just wasn't there that one night. He, he takes the fall for the same process that everybody else in the story, from what we read last week and this week, actually goes through. And what's really going on with him, right? So if you actually look at the story, Thomas doesn't doubt, at least not any more than anybody else in the story does. Thomas goes through this same journey that the disciples do and that Mary does, of seeing Jesus believing him. For the entire day of Easter, you can imagine that Jesus ran to the disciples and that she's telling them over and over again, no, no, really, I saw him. Like, he's actually alive. He didn't die. I know you guys saw him die, but he didn't die. And they don't believe until Jesus shows up in the upper room. And just like that, for the entire week, for the entire next week, 
the disciples keep telling Thomas. They're, they're trying to describe it to him. They're trying to tell him this situation. They're trying to convince him that what they saw was real and that what they experienced when they saw Jesus and his wounds was real. You, you can kind of imagine them on Thursday, I think, just kind of at their wit's end, and they've told him a hundred times, and they're like, really, Tommy, you got to believe us. No, he was there. It was amazing. We saw his wounds, and, and he blessed us. And it was just a Holy Spirit thing. Like, you, you wouldn't believe it, but it, it actually happened. But Thomas needs to see this for himself. Thomas needs to go through his own experience to come to his own understanding. And when Jesus does see Thomas, or when Thomas does see Jesus, when Jesus talks to him, Jesus doesn't say that that's a bad thing. Jesus doesn't admonish Thomas or tell him, you know, that he was a bad person for having to wait an extra long period of time. What Jesus does say to Thomas when he finally comes to believe is that those who will come after him, that those who will not have the opportunity to see, and yet will still believe that they will be blessed. So Thomas's faith wasn't weaker because it took him longer to understand, or because it took him longer to figure things out. Jesus was okay with that, right? Jesus was okay with Mary in the garden not recognizing who he was. He didn't get upset with Mary that she thought he was a gardener. He didn't get upset with the other disciples because they're locked away in the upper room. And he doesn't get upset with Thomas a week later. Everybody, all of us who come to find faith, have to do it on our own timeline. Do it in our own experiences, in our own lived way that's true to ourselves and the life that we have. And what's more, coming to faith like this isn't, it's not a one-time process, right? It, it's not like you, you come to have an experience of faith and then everything is just fine and hunky-dory and, and all of life is great after that especially not today and especially not in a place like Los Angeles. Here, there's some sort of spiritual experience kind of waiting on every corner, whether it's a faith experience or a pill you can take or people going to Mars or a meditative process or something. There's, there's something that is offering fulfillment all around us in a major city like this. Faith in God today often isn't the rule. In fact, it's kind of the exception to the rule. It's one option among many options that, we, that we're given. And often, if we're honest, faith in God isn't the best-looking option sometimes. There's a lot of people who have been wounded by the church, people who have gone through hurts and pains. There's a lot of people who feel like they did everything right, and yet everything went wrong, and they're left trying to figure it out. But imagine what it would have been like for those disciples on that Easter night, locked away in that upper room. For years now, They've been following this rabbi. They've been listening to his teachings. They gave up their jobs. They gave up their personal lives. They kind of have given up everything to follow this Jesus because they truly believed that he was the Messiah who had come. And they have these understandings, and they have these expectations of what that means right, in their culture, in their lives. They, they have a belief of what, they, of what it means to be the Messiah. But then Jesus dies just like that, and he's gone. And all of their understandings of what it meant to be a Messiah and to come and save the world and, and to do all these great things are shattered. Imagine their disappointment, their disillusionment. Imagine their fear. Right? They're locked away in this room because they think that they're next and they don't know what's happening. Kind of all of that, those expectations just shattered on the cross. But when we read the Gospels, we see time and time again that Jesus fails to meet the expectations that are set before him. 
Sometimes it's just healing somebody on the Sabbath, and sometimes it's conquering death itself. This is sort of the ultimate version of that, of they expected a conqueror, and they got a conqueror of death. And many people feel the same way today, right? That they have expectations and that those expectations haven't met. For me today to believe, if I'm honest, is an act of faith that I have to come to every day, sometimes every hour. It's a process of going through that rebelief when things go wrong. There's this, there's this Episcopal priest and theologian named Barbara Brown Taylor that I really like, that I've been reading a lot recently, and she talks a little bit about this experience in her own life. And in one of her books, she writes that over and over, my disappointments draw me deeper into the mystery of God's being and God's doing. Every time God meet, declines to meet one of my expectations, another one of my idols is exposed. Another curtain gets drawn back, and I can see what I have propped up in place of God. She goes on to write that on the other side of that disillusionment, when things get exposed, and that disappointment is a deeper understanding of God for her, where God becomes greater than her imagination, wiser than wisdom, more dazzling than the universe itself, as present as the air I breathe, and utterly beyond my control. I really think that's a beautiful picture of God. So, back to our story, right? We have Thomas here. This is a painting by an artist named Caravaggio. I really like this painting. Um, I like that Jesus is holding Thomas's hand, his wrist, as he's guiding his hand into his side. There are two things about Thomas that I specifically really, really like. First is that Thomas doesn't believe the other disciples when they tell him that they saw Jesus, and he doesn't do it for an entire week. But Thomas also doesn't leave them, because a week later we see that he's back in the room with them still. Thomas, through his unbelief, he's stayed with the disciples the entire week, even though that he probably thought that story was completely absurd. The real danger of our fear and disappointment is not that we're going to be in it. The real danger of our doubt is not that we're going to be in it, but we're going to stay there. Um, and the thing about Thomas that I really like is that Thomas keeps putting one foot in front of the other. He keeps moving through the process with the community that he has around him. He keeps pushing. And the second thing I like about Thomas is actually his name. Thomas, we're, we see in this text, we don't often get this in the Gospels, but Thomas was given as two names, right? So Thomas is an Aramaic name, um, and then we're given another name, which is Didymus, which is a Greek name. And that was pretty common around that time. Everybody would kind of have two names in the culture. And Thomas and Didymus mean the exact same thing in their language, which is that they mean twin. The, the Gospels tell us that, that, that Thomas was a twin of somebody, but they never tell us who Thomas's twin was. We're just kind of told that he has a twin. But I feel like in this story, and in the way that Jesus responds to Thomas in his doubt, we are told who Thomas's twin is. I feel like whenever we go through that process of disillusionment and fear and doubt and worry, and when I do that for myself, I become Thomas's twin, and we become Thomas's twin, that we can stand alongside him as his brother and as his twin. And whenever we find our own pendulum of belief kind of swinging one way or another, we join in that process 
of moving from unbelief to belief, of faith and doubt with tongues. And so, I don't know, I mean, I don't know many of you individually. I don't know where you all are in your process. Um, I don't know how long you've been in church, how long you've been here, how long you've been going through these processes. Um, but I hope that you know wherever you are in the process, whatever you have been going through, Jesus is okay with that. And when you have those days that are dark and doubting and disillusioned, or when things happen, that that's part of the process, and that Jesus is okay with it. And that you're here in community, and that what's great is that there's a lot of us going through that process of learning about faith together. I think that's one of the most important aspects of the church. Because on the other side of that disillusionment is an empty tomb, and is hope. And it's hope and an understanding that we're in good hands, that love surrounds us and permeates the universe, and that God will have the last word, and that's love. Thank you, Stephen. Let's close together with a song. Let's stand if you wish. What's that? <laughs> no, we did that one already. Do you want to sing it again? I tell you what, let's sing that again. Let's sing Dwelling in Beulah Land, which uh, is what we sang over communion. But that's a, that'll be a good one to close with. Safe forever in Beulah 
fountain that never shall run dry. I'm feasting on the manna from a bountiful supply for I am dwelling in Beulahland. Let's sing that chorus one more time. I'm living on the mountain underneath the cloudless sky. I'm drinking from the fountain that never shall run dry. I'm feasting on the manna from a bountiful supply for us. 